This morning we're going to be considering the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 74 on page 15 in the back of the Psalter. And we'll read that now, question and answer 74, page 15. Are infants also to be baptized? The answer, yes, for since they as well as the adult are included in the covenant and church of God, And since redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith is promised to them no less than to the adult. They must therefore by baptism as a sign of the covenant be also admitted into the church, into the Christian church, and be distinguished from the children of unbelievers, as was done in the old covenant or testament by circumcision, instead of which baptism is instituted in the new covenant." Let's read in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, a very brief passage, just verses 13 through 16. Mark, chapter 10, 13 through 16. Mark, chapter 10, verse 13, And they brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them, but when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and bless them. In this passage, beloved, there are three distinct elements, each worthy of a sermon, and all connected in some way to baptism. First, there's the example of believing parents who brought their children to Jesus that he might touch them and bless them. And in contrast to them, there are the disciples turning them away, forbidding children to come to Jesus. Tim and Liz, in bringing Rowan for baptism this morning, you've brought him to Jesus to be blessed by him. But this bringing is not limited to baptism. All through the growing up years of our children, we must continue to bring them to Jesus. And that's something that we do by teaching them God's Word, by praying with them, by showing them their need of Jesus the Savior, by helping them to recognize their own sin. And we do this also by bringing them under the saving word of the gospel and ensuring ensuring that their education is a Christian education. And as you do that, we all need to be warned with what Jesus says here to the disciples, forbid them not, that we be aware not to hinder our children from coming to Jesus. You think of Ephesians chapter 6, fathers provoke not your children to wrath. So that's the first element of this passage. The second element of this passage is Jesus taking up the children in his arms and blessing them and showing us in that something of the heart of God towards children who are conceived and born in sin, particularly towards covenant children. And this too is connected to baptism as a proof that children ought to be baptized. Jesus took them up in his arms, embraced them, laid his hands upon them, and bless them. That's the heart of God to covenant children. The third element in this 
passage is in verse 15, and it has to do with how we come into the kingdom. Jesus uses the blessing of these children and his instruction on it over against the disciples' forbidding to teach us a lesson in the truth that anyone who enters into the kingdom must come in the same way that these little children came into the kingdom. And he makes that point very strongly in verse 15. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall not enter therein. And he teaches us there the wonder of grace that's reflected in the baptism of infants. So what we want to do this morning is to tie these different elements of the passage together around the doctrine of infant baptism as that's given to us here in the catechism and also make reference in that to the form for baptism which quotes from this chapter. So let's consider this morning blessing infants by baptism. Notice first what Jesus does, second the reason that Jesus gives, and then third the lesson that Jesus teaches. What Jesus does here is really summarized in verse 16. He took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. It says nothing about baptism. So what does this have to do with baptism? That's the first question that we want to answer this morning. The Baptists take this passage and really make it parallel to Matthew chapter 18 verses 3 and 4, where Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so they say this is a lesson in how we should humble ourselves and believe in order to enter the kingdom. So what does this have to do with baptism? And perhaps you ask that question also in light of what we read in the baptism form where four different biblical proofs are given for the baptism of infants. The first is that God speaks to Abraham, the father of all believers, and so to us and our children. Genesis seventeen seven: I will establish my covenant with me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations, and I will be a God to thee and thy children after thee. Believers are the children of Abraham, is the argument. And so this is spoken not just to Abraham and Israel, his natural children, but to believers and their children. And that's affirmed in the second proof here in Acts 2, verse 39. The promise is unto you and to your children. That's in the New Testament. That's Peter on the day of Pentecost. And on the day which we could say the church matures and comes into the New Testament era, the promises to you and to your children. Those two biblical proofs are given. And then this practice of the Old Testament is referred to here. Because the promise of God is to believers and their children, God commanded them in the Old Testament to be circumcised. So the children of believers in the Old Testament were circumcised. And that was a sign of the covenant with believers and their children. And then there's a reference to the New Testament, the passage that we read 
that Jesus took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, embraced them, and blessed them. And as we think about that, it seems like a big leap to say that the covenant with believers and their children is represented by baptism, by circumcision in the Old Testament, and by what Jesus does here in the New Testament. How is this a proof of the baptism and the necessity, the requirement of the baptism of our children. Well, let's say some things about this passage in Mark 16 that will make that clear. The first is that the children that were brought to Jesus were, in fact, infants. Jesus, it says, took them up in his arms. And the word that Luke uses is the word in Luke 18:15 is the word for infants. It's the same word that he uses to refer to the unborn John leaping in his mother's womb and to Jesus when he was a a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. So these were infants that were brought to Jesus in the arms of their parents. Second, understand the reason that these parents brought them to Jesus. It was not merely that they, that he might, that they might be touched by some notable figure and that Jesus might show some human affection towards them. This is not just a passage to show the humanity of Jesus. But Matthew indicates in Matthew 19, verse 13, that they brought these children that he might put his hands on them and pray. They understood something of who Jesus was. And they wanted his blessing and his prayer for them. That shows that they were believing parents, and in blessing the children, Jesus met the desire of these believing parents. But here in Matthew, what stands out is the rebuke that Jesus gives to his disciples. We read about that in verses 13 and 14. His disciples rebuked those that brought them, but when Jesus saw it, that is, he saw what his disciples were doing, he was much displeased. And the words there, much displeased, have the idea of anger, becoming indignant. The red rising up in your neck, right? Jesus here is angry with his disciples because they turn away these parents and their children. And that was a just anger on his part, the same kind of anger that he showed to those who turned the temple into a den of thieves and a place for commerce. Why was Jesus angry? Well, it was because of what the disciples did. They rebuked those that brought them. And that word is in the continuous. They were rebuking. They continued to rebuke. They turned away many parents who brought their children to Jesus to be touched by him. Why did they do that? Was it merely because they saw children as a bother, something that would distract from the ministry of Jesus? Was it because children and their presence was culturally unacceptable in this culture? In this culture, they should be seen and not heard. Did they think that Jesus was too busy for children? It could have been a number of those things. But Jesus' anger is because of this, that in turning away the children... The disciples misrepresent the covenant affection that God has for the children of believers. 
they misunderstand something of the kingdom of heaven, who its citizens are, and how the king receives those citizens. And so he's angry. This has to do with God. And Jesus is teaching us something here about God and the character of God as a covenant God. And what we, what we learn about God here, we find in his Son, Jesus Christ. When he takes the children in his arm, this is not arms, this is not just a display of human affection towards children. Some people like children, other people don't really care for children. Jesus was someone who liked children. That's not what this is saying here. But it shows God's own attitude towards children. God in Jesus Christ takes these children into his arms and blesses them. And don't we see a parallel for that in the Old Testament? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. He shall carry the lambs in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. God is a father. And he takes up children and brings them into his family. He makes them his children. And Jesus is angry here with the disciples because they misrepresent the character of the covenant God. And that's the connection in the form for baptism. God formerly commanded them to be circumcised, which was a sign and seal of the covenant. And therefore Jesus also took them up in his arms, laid his hands upon them, and blessed them. The tender and saving love for infants begins in God himself. He commanded the children to be circumcised in the Old Testament. He beheld them in their sin, their natural state, conceived and born in sin, children of wrath. And he was moved with compassion and mercy towards them. And as a seal of his mercy to them, he gives circumcision in the Old Testament. And now Jesus, as he comes, is doing nothing of himself but only the Father's will. He is expressed image of God the Father. And so he rebukes his disciples, takes up the children in his arms, blesses them, sees them as infants. He knows them in their lost condition. And he's come as Savior to seek and to save that which is lost. And so he touched them. He embraced them. He prayed over them, and he blessed them. Those are all words in the gospel accounts that tell us what Jesus did with these children. What was this? Well, here Mark puts a, a focus or an emphasis on the fact that Jesus touched these children. Verse 13, they brought young children to him that he should touch them. And Jesus does more than simply touch them. He takes them up in his arms. He cradles them. And he puts his hands upon them. This is something like Jacob placing his hands on the sons of Joseph. And he blesses them. 
In the Gospel of Mark, and I, I don't have time to show the whole thread of this, but the touch of Jesus is a very important theme, and it has to do with Jesus' humanity and with Jesus as a Savior, one who, as King in heaven, sympathizes with and is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And so in Mark chapter 1, you have a couple of instances of that. Peter's mother was sick, and Mark 1 verse 31, he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Again, in verse 41, Jesus comes into a synagogue, Mark chapter 1 verse 41, and there's a man there who's possessed with a demon, and Jesus moved with compassion, we read, put forth his hand and touched him and said unto him, I will be thou clean. If something similar again in, in Mark chapter 5, the touch of Jesus. This is the touch when a woman comes to him who's got an issue of blood. And you remember that she reached out and touched the hem of his garment. And Jesus says, who touched me? It was contact. And then he comes into Jairus' home and again he takes her by the hand and he says to her, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise, the touch of the Savior. That's what Mark wants us to think about as, as these children are brought to Jesus. They're brought to Jesus. These people, these parents has, have observed the touch, the power, the saving power of the touch of Jesus. And they bring their children to Jesus to be touched by him. Were the children sick? Were they disabled? No, they understood their children were sinners. And they needed the saving touch of Jesus. And he touched them, he embraced them, he laid his hands upon them. This is the saving touch of Jesus, imparting the blessings of the kingdom to children. He blessed them. Blessing and cursing is the language of the covenant. And Jesus, as Savior, took our curse on himself so that we might be blessed. That's the blessing here on these children. It was a touch of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who in regeneration gives new life. It was the saving touch of forgiveness and healing from sin and its presence and its power. It's the touch of adoption in which he says, you are mine, and he lays his hands upon them and says, these are my children. And when we bring our children for baptism, that's our desire, that the saving touch of Jesus might rest on them. And that's the sign of baptism. And so Jesus speaks very strongly in correction of his disciples in verse 14. Suffer or permit, allow the children to come unto me and forbid them not. Do not say no to them. Do not stand in the way of their coming. And you understand that the disciples here represent the New Testament church. The apostles are the foundation. He commands the church here, don't forbid the children. Let them come to me. 
This is the command of Jesus. And the refusal to baptize children to see them as God's children is not only a misrepresentation of the character of God, but disobedience to the command of the Savior. And all of that we've seen here in Mark 10 without even looking at the language of the catechism that we read. And here it is. Redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith, is promised to them, that is to our children, no less than to the adult. Therefore, they must be baptized. Jesus gives a reason here for not forbidding the children to come to him and for his laying his hands on them and blessing them. And that's in the end of verse 14. And again, it reflects the language of the catechism. He says, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. The catechism says they, as well as the adult, are included in the covenant and church of God. The form for baptism makes clear that through baptism, what symbolized is our entrance into the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. That speaks of a mutual belonging. They belong to the kingdom, and the kingdom belongs to them. And that's why Jesus speaks in the passage here of they're entering the kingdom and they're receiving the kingdom. They are possessors of the kingdom. They have a place in the kingdom. All the rights and the privileges of the citizens of the kingdom are theirs. Children, as well as adults, are included in the covenant and church of God. Now, what does he mean here by children when he says, of such children is the kingdom of God? He doesn't mean that all children are included in the kingdom, not even all children who receive the sacrament are citizens of the kingdom. Of such, he's saying children as well as adults. That was the thinking of his disciples. The kingdom belonged to adults. They had a place in the kingdom. They were believers. And Jesus is saying, no, children too, of such, is the kingdom of heaven. And so it doesn't mean that all children are included in the kingdom until they reach some age of accountability. Nothing could be further from the truth because by nature we are conceived and born in sin and are children of wrath and darkness. And from the point of view of sin, all children are in the same boat, also the children of believers. And that's why we need to baptize our children because we, with our children, are conceived and born in sin. That's the first thing we acknowledge as we bring our children for baptism. Nor does it mean that maybe later on they can perhaps become citizens of his kingdom when they believe. And neither does it mean that children can be saved already as infants, even though that's true. Samuel, John the Baptist. But what Jesus says here, of such is the kingdom of God, is something about the way that God works in his kingdom generationally. In the touch of the Savior, we see the mercy of God towards sinners. When Jesus gives the reason now, we see that God is a covenant God who works in generations with believers and their children.
The specific children that Jesus blesses here are the children of believers. That's indicated in Matthew that they brought their children that he might pray for them. And here in Mark, they brought their children that he might touch them. And the idea of the verb therefore brought is really that they came to offer their children. You remember Hannah and her son Samuel. I've returned him to the Lord. That's something of what's indicated by their bringing their children to Jesus. These were believing parents. And these children are are received not on account of the faith of their parents, but on account of God's covenant in generations. God, by His Spirit and grace, has worked this faith in these parents. And now Jesus is saying their children too are included in the kingdom. And so even though this passage is not about baptism, it lays the foundation for the New Testament practice of the baptism of infants. Maybe you ask, well, why doesn't Jesus be more specific here? Why doesn't he say something about the baptism of children and baptism taking the place of circumcision? Well, the reason for that is that the revelation that Jesus is giving to his disciples is, we could say, progressive. They're not ready yet for that. Baptism itself hasn't even yet been instituted in the church as a sign, but Jesus is showing here that in the New Testament, God will operate generationally as the covenant God, just as he did in the Old Testament. And that's the strength of those other proofs in the form. Abraham is the father of all the faithful, of believers. And the word to him is, my covenant is with you and your children in their generations. And that's the word that comes to New Testament believers in Acts 2, verse 39. The promise is to you and to your children. And so in the Old Testament, children received circumcision. That was not just a mark of being a Jew, but that was a mark of covenant. And everyone in the household received it. Also the bond servants. It was a sign of God receiving households, families. And that's why in the New Testament we read things like this, that he and his house believed that Lydia and her household were baptized. Because faith and grace works in homes and families. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. And that's a wonderful encouragement for us in our Christian homes. We can have confidence for the future. Sometimes there's fear that we have for the future. Perhaps we look at the state of things in society. Perhaps we look at things at the state of things in Christianity. Perhaps we see the church deteriorating spiritually. We wonder what our children will have to face in the future. And whether they will stand strong through those things. We don't need to have that fear. We view our children as God's children. And we rest in His promises. And continually we bring our children to Jesus for His blessing.
Well, Jesus uses this whole incident incident to teach an important lesson, and it's an important lesson especially about the doctrine of grace. That's the point of Jesus' instruction in verse 15, where he says very strongly, Verily I say unto you, truly I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, then this very emphatically, he shall not enter therein. So only those, and Jesus says, verily, truly, only those who receive the kingdom as a little child shall enter therein. He doesn't mean by this that only those who, we would say, are regenerated, or become Christians as children, will enter into the kingdom. Now we understand that God works covenantally, but we also understand that God brings others in as adults. Sometimes our own children don't believe till they're adults. So he's not saying they must believe while they are children. Nor is he saying that you have to come humble and meek like a child, as he does in Matthew 18, verse 4. There's something wrong with that interpretation here, because Jesus is not saying that it's on account of certain prerequisites or qualifications in your coming that you enter into the kingdom. Children are not naturally more humble or more open to the kingdom, disposed to the kingdom. That's not what Jesus is saying here. If I say that you're acting like a child, that's not a compliment. It doesn't mean you're meek and humble. It means, in fact, the opposite, that you're selfish and proud. We without children are conceived and born in sin. Salvation is not dependent on some prerequisite within us. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. Rather, he's teaching with the illustration of infants, infants, that salvation comes by sovereign grace and not by human effort. Children in Jesus' day had no standing in society. If they received anything, it was not because they deserved it or had earned it, but it was a gift to them. And in the same way, if any of us are to receive the kingdom, it's a gift from God to us. It's of grace. And that's Jesus' meaning here. And that's especially what we must understand with regard to the illustration here of infants. That's the difference to Matthew 18, where he takes a little child. Infants here are helpless. Infants here are carried. Infants here are wholly dependent. We could say that they passively and even unconsciously enter into the kingdom and receive this blessing and touch from the Savior, just as our children receive baptism, usually before they're aware of it. And that's what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 3 when he talks about entrance into the kingdom. Except a man's born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
What is it to be born again? That's represented also in baptism. New life is to be regenerated by the power, the sovereign power and work of the Holy Spirit. And that's Jesus' instruction here. The thrust of what he says here is that the kingdom belongs to infants and the entrance into the kingdom is then and therefore must be a gift of grace, not something earned, not something that anyone has a right to. They belong in the kingdom and the kingdom belongs to them only on account of grace. And then we really understand why Jesus is so indignant with the disciples who are turning away these children from the kingdom. They were in danger not only of, of saying something contrary to the character of the covenant of God, the covenant God, but they were in danger of turning the grace of God that brings us into the kingdom into something earned by man. And the gospel point for us here is that as much as we are concerned to preach repentance and faith to unbelievers and also to our children, that they must repent and believe. We must never make the mistake of teaching that we ourselves gain access and earn the right of a place in the kingdom through what we have done. And it's that wonderful truth of grace that's reflected in the baptism of our infants. This protects and this reflects the truth of sovereign grace. It tells us that we're passive in the beginning work of salvation, in regeneration. It even, we could say, brings up the important truth of predestination with regard to our children and their place in the kingdom, so that, as Romans 9, Romans 9 says, before they had done any good or evil, with regard to Jacob and Esau, before they had done any good or evil, it was said to Rebekah, the elder shall serve the younger, and Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. God had chosen Jacob, he's mine, and rejected Esau. And so election comes into the covenant and it's on account of God's electing grace that we have a place in the kingdom. And that, of course, is a wonderful encouragement, not just to parents with regard to their children, but to all of us. Because in the end, that's our salvation. We depend on God and His grace. In the words of Jesus, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And so let's be encouraged this morning, not only with regard to baptism itself, with regard to our families and our children, but even in the wonderful truth of salvation by grace alone. Amen. Father, we thank Thee for the wonderful truth of baptism and the symbolism of it, but also and especially this, the, the wonder that's taught concerning thy grace in our salvation, that we are received into Christ and received into the kingdom as those who are 
completely unworthy of these things. We without children conceived and born in sin are translated by thy grace from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of thy dear Son. We thank thee, Lord, for this grace in Jesus Christ.